Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Long ago, Gary Kasparov had a showdown with the future, and the future won. Now, keep in mind, Kasparov hates losing. For nearly a 30-year span, he was ranked the top chess player in the world for all but three months. And even thinking about old games or moves that he missed decades ago annoys him. Which is why, for many, his matches against the IBM computer Deep Blue in the 1990s held so much importance. A month after his 1996 match against Deep Blue, he wrote about, quote, a new kind of intelligence across the table. That intelligence is now across all of our tables. Kasparov writes about this intelligence, its implications for us and the jobs we do, and why computers might be our partners rather than our foes in his most recent book, Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. And one thing to note, as Kasparov pointed out to me a few months back when we spoke, he did beat Deep Blue in a series of games before Deep Blue turned the tables the following year. Still, Deep Blue's ability early on to steal even one game from Kasparov sent a signal. The fact that machine could beat a reigning world chess champion uh, under normal tournament conditions, that was already um, an indication that the rest would be just a matter of time. It's like uh, like a sign on the wall. Why do you think that you're facing off with Deep Blue has such kind of cultural resonance and gets talked about a lot. And it's kind of not even the specific game, but it, it's like this signpost, right? From the beginning of um, computer era, um, uh, there was a belief that chess could serve as the ultimate test for machines' intelligence. And also, the ch- game of chess was always seen as a nexus for human intellect. So that's why machine-facing humans in chess and winning this battle... That definitely could be a revolutionary moment, is, is, is a watershed moment. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, the matches in 96 and especially in 1997, they were quite unique because it was just the beginning of this new era. It's the, the technology was introduced in our daily life. So people had very little access to technology before. Many did, but still, the when you look at the big numbers, it was just, you know, the grand opening. And I think the match in 1997 played a huge role in changing people's view about technology. It was a very annoying moment for me. But at the end of the day, um, hmm. if, I, if I have to think back what it was my curse or my blessing that uh, I became world champion when machines were really weak and I ended up my professional chess career when machines were unbeatable, I think it's more like a blessing because I was part of something unique, mm. a unique experiment. Um, and uh, right. having a choice between being the first world champion to duck this challenge or to get in, into that and to lose, right. I'd rather prefer the latter. You could have come away from your experiences with artificial intelligence just kind of, you know, wanting to get as far away from AI as possible. But that's not really what you've done. You speak a lot at places that use AI, like Facebook, like Google, like hedge funds. What made you so interested in AI, even beyond chess? Uh, first of all, when we say AI, you know, I always ask people to be more precise um, about the meaning, because mm-hmm. if you ask 10 experts about meaning of AI, you may end up with 11 different answers. Yep. And yep. I personally, I prefer augmented intelligence okay. as the definition. And the reason why I was so engaged, still so much engaged in this debate, which is very much philosophical debate at this point, 
That is, um, I realized that while, after my match with Deep Blue in 1997, that while the, the rest of this fight against machines would be over fairly soon, so we could actually use chess as a model for collaboration. You cannot beat mm -hmm. them, join them. And uh, um, okay. I came up with a concept that I called advanced chess, where we could have um, human and machine teaming up, uh, playing against other humans, uh, another human and machine. So we found out some, something quite interesting is that it's not about the strength of the player who is teaming up with the machine, but it's more about the interface. It's about the process. Because machines are so strong today, that is, you don't need uh, a very strong player to be a partner. Somehow it, it could even be a liability because strong players, they tend to play their own game. They don't want to recognize the fact that in many cases, machine is just superior. But it's about a good operator, someone who could add these uh, hints of human knowledge when it's required and to make sure that a machine doesn't lose its pass in certain situations where machine knowledge is not sufficient. So um, the formula that I drew out of my personal experience and my contemplations and analysis is that a weak human player uh, with average machine and superior process will always dominate in the game against stronger player even stronger machine, mm. but inferior process. Can you see examples beyond chess of places where um, that kind of human-computer collaboration could be or is particularly important or powerful or useful? Everywhere, actually. This is, you, okay. you can hardly call area where it's not happening, but nobody understands how to get the best out of this. And uh, we can move into, say, medical diagnosis. So uh, we know that machines are getting better and better, though there's still the sub-areas right. where machine could not provide the best answer. But uh, mm -hmm. if you apply the same formula in, into this area, so you'd rather have an experienced nurse working with, with an algorithm than a top professor who, who will always be tempted to challenge machines' assumptions. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Gary Kasparov, one of the great chess players of all time and author of the book, Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. You tell this story in your book that I didn't know anything about, but it's fascinating. You know, there were once upon a time thousands, actually tens of thousands of elevator operators. And you say that the... In New York, in New York. And, and you say that the elevator companies actually had the technology to have essentially automated elevators, which is what we have now, right? You can operate them yourself. You just get in and press a button. It's easy. It takes you where you need to go. Nobody helps you. But they didn't want to introduce the technology because they were basically worried that people weren't ready for it. They were worried about the backlash. It's a fear. It's just a fear of something new, something unusual. Yeah, and it's for, for almost half a century, the technology was there, but was not introduced. And what pushed people, you know, in this direction is, is, is a general strike of the elevator operator union uh, that was very powerful in even mid-40s. And when people had to climb to Empire State Building, they thought maybe we'd rather take a chance of pushing the button. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same will, will, will happen in, in the car industry. I bet you that 25, 30 years from now, uh, on this show, we'll have our children, grandchildren, talking about us, their parents and grandparents, being so stupid, driving cars, while right. the car accident killed more people than probably any, any other uh, uh, factor uh, in the modern life. So mm -hmm. it's, I think it's about us just simply recognizing that progress is, is inevitable and, and every technology is agnostic. It's neither good nor bad. It's, it's for us to use it. And unfortunately, looking back, 
at, at every major um, innovation, the breakthrough um, technology, it's, it's always started with a destruction because it's easy to, to destroy. You know, first, you are, when you have a nuclear uh, technology, first you, you come up with a nuclear bomb and then with a nuclear reactor. So, I mean, it certainly is true that technological change always switches around what people do. Um, you know, as we said, elevators showed us that. Maybe self-driving cars are going to show us that. But you also have scholars who say, like, this time feels different um, and that, you know, if you look at jobs, for example, you've got a bunch of jobs being created on the high end. You've got quite a few jobs being created on the low end. But it seems like there's not a lot of jobs being created in the middle, these jobs that, that support the middle class. Um, do you worry about that? Um, look, I think it's a history of human civilization. It's uh, You may call it a progress. Mm-hmm. Since the, the dawn of human civilization, we have been inventing machines, some sort of for primitive mechanisms to replace farm animals. And then, uh, of course, we moved further by improving the, um, the quality of human labor. It ended up mm-hmm. with um, machines uh, destroying uh, millions and millions and millions of manufacturing jobs over the last few centuries. And that was there. And uh, the difference today is that all of a sudden machines are going after people with college degrees, political yeah. influence, and Twitter accounts. But if you look at the big yeah. picture of the history of civilization, this is normal. And I believe that's the way to move forward because hmm. any industry, any, any job that is not under pressure from technology, um, it ends up in stagnation. Um, yeah, I don't want to sound callous. I understand that people just are concerned about the jobs being lost, but this is something that I think we don't want to understand about technology. Technology brings mm-hmm. many benefits to our lives. We live longer. It's if, you, if you compare the, the, the lifespan today with what was 100 years ago, I think we added mm-hmm. at least 25, if not 30 years, mm-hmm. thanks yeah. to technology, thanks to uh, new, um, new drugs, new vitamins, diet, and also diagnosis. So that's the things that could identify the terminal illnesses just uh, uh, at an early stage. So people live mm-hmm. longer thanks to technology. But the same technology carries the, the negatives because it puts pressure on, on middle class. It puts pressure on, on people since they, you know, the younger people, they are just, they're more at demand. So that's a paradox. So uh, if we try to protract this agony, if we try to slow down the process to delay the inevitable, so what, what is going to happen? The jobs will be lost anyway, but the new jobs will not be created on time to um, help us to move into the new, um, so new cycle of economic growth to have more benefits and potentially financial cushion to help people who are left behind. Hmm. Finally, um, you have said when articles describe President Trump or uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin as saying uh, that they are, quote, playing chess, right? Meaning that they are making these kind of tricky political moves, that that is an expression that really gets on your nerves. Why? Um, starting with Trump, I don't think he can play chess because it's, it's a very, <laughs> very short span of attention. So chess requires some concentration. Uh, also, um, chess is 100% transparent game. And uh, that's, that's, that works for, uh, actually, that doesn't work for both Trump and Putin. They don't like transparency. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's the, typically, this is, it's uh, less for Trump, more for Putin, but both are used to operate in some kind of the clandestine in- environment. So believing that uh, it's, it's for, for them to make all the decisions and then to inform or even not decide not to inform people about the outcome. So they're doing something, but not playing chess. 
Yeah, I would. I always wanted to compare Putin's game with poker because he was pretty good in 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 playing with weak hand, but bluffing, okay. raising stakes, and expecting <laughs> opponents to fold cards. Gary Kasparov is author of the new book Deep Thinking: Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. He's also a former world chess champion. Gary, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about Kasparov's match against Deep Blue about 20 years ago. People still debate whether it was a fair fight. We will have a link to a video from ESPN Films and 538 analyzing the match. It's on our website, innovationhub.org. 